Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. If you look at medicine as a discipline, it's inherently multimodal in nature. Doctors and clinicians routinely interpret data from you know, all sorts of modalities ranging from clinical text to imaging to you know, lab records and lab tests and vital signs and sensors data. We like to set the bar high and we, have, we like to go after the most ambitious problem. And for that, the most ambitious version of the problem felt like you know, building a journalist, biomedical AI agent. It's no longer science fiction to think that that is possible. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. I am super excited about today's conversation about Google's new multimodal MedPalm M model with returning guest Vivek Natarajan and lead co-author Tao Tu. This paper, published just a few months after Vivek was here to discuss MedPalm 2, extends Google's insane run in generalist medical AI by training a single system that accepts not just clinical texts, but a wide range of medical imaging and even genomics data and trains it to perform 14 distinct medical tasks, of which text-only medical question answering is just one. The headline from this work is that this single model sets new state-of-the-art performance records across a number of tasks, while also coming close in a few more, all with a single set of model weights. For radiology report generation specifically, the AI output was preferred to that of a human radiologist more than 40% of the time. The promise for society over the next couple of years is no less than an AI doctor in everyone's pocket all around the world, one that can not only understand patient language and images, but also incorporate and interpret new things like genomic data in superhuman ways. The insights from this conversation were, for me, many. I talked with Vivek and Tao about how predictable such incredible progress has recently become, the many different tricks and best practices that go into training a large-scale model like this, how quickly and efficiently they can conduct this work as they stand on the shoulders of giants at Google, the extremely promising generalization that this system is already showing, how much low-hanging fruit remains available to improve future models' performance, how Google's strategy of building comparatively narrow specialist systems drives value while also promoting safety, the path to clinical testing and deployment of generalist medical AIs, and lots more along the way as well. If you've got any doubts about AI having major impact on humanity over the next few years, I think that after listening to this conversation and considering not just where we are today, but how consistently we are moving forward and how much room we clearly have left to run, I think that those doubts will pretty quickly fade away. As always, if you're finding value in the show, we would appreciate it if you'd share it with friends and post a review to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And of course, I always love to hear from listeners. 
This last week, I got LinkedIn notes from a London-based growth equity investor who said that he listens to the show in order to better understand the edges of AI leaders' understanding of AI systems. And also from an intelligent automation leader at an iconic American manufacturing company with over 50,000 employees, who said that he'd watched the AI scouting report on YouTube multiple times. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please, don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice. Now, on to the show with Vivek Natarajan and Tao Tu, authors of Google's new multimodal MedPalm M. Vivek Natarajan and Tao Tu from Google, authors of Multimodal MedPalm. Welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Pleasure to be back over here, Nathan. And I'm looking forward to this one with Tao. Yeah, same anxiety. My first time doing a podcast. Well, I, you know, I take a pride in having a lot of first-time podcast guests who are doing great work on the show. So uh, welcome to you know, a proud tradition for me. You guys have been really on a tear at uh, Google of late with, you know, an incredible series of papers specifically focused on the medical use case with MedPalm, MedPalm 2, and now multimodal MedPalm. Um, and it hasn't even been that long since our first episode, you know, just a few months have passed between when it was like, okay, we sort of achieved with MedPalm, you know, maybe whatever, six to eight months ago, we achieved kind of passing level on the, you know, licensing exam to with MedPalm 2, oh, we achieved expert level question answering. And now with multimodal, you are incorporating all these other types of data, imagery, and you know, even genetic information. So it's really just incredible how fast this is moving. And yet at the same time, like I kind of wasn't even super surprised by it because it just feels like you're on such a consistent role at this point that um, these things that were once unthinkable are now almost expected. For starters, like, tell me what's that, what is that like? Like you're, you're working at this kind of critical point, I feel like in human history and all these milestones just keep falling one after another. Yeah, I think uh, the key over here is uh, we have been building on the shoulder of giants over here at Google. And so in many ways, all this started off with the transformer uh, revolution back in 2017. And then more recently with the Palm series of work and the underlying infrastructure that allows you to train large models effectively and efficiently at scale. Um, so I think that helps a lot. And then the second thing is at least on the medical AI side, again, uh, my team at Google, we've been around for several years now and uh, we've had quite a few successes, but also a lot of failures and we've learned from that. What helps is we also have like a very nice and strong interdisciplinary team that really understands medicine and healthcare. And so that in turn helps us, you know, motivate and frame problems in an appropriate manner and then go after them. And so I would say this is just in many ways, you know, the, the foundations have been there and around for a long period of time. And this just feels like, you know, surfing the wave, like it's just the right place at the right time, given all the foundations that exist. And we're just incredibly lucky and fortunate to be part of it. So let's characterize this system a little bit, you know, starting with the inputs, I suppose, probably the, the natural place to start. Previous systems have been all text. This system accepts a lot more different kinds of inputs. So tell us about the new types of inputs that it accepts and how you selected them. I think the motivation for this is fairly clear. Uh, if you look at medicine as a discipline, it's inherently multimodal in nature. Doctors and clinicians routinely interpret data from 
you know, all sorts of modalities ranging from clinical text to imaging uh, to, you know, lab records and lab tests and vital signs and sensors data. Um, so doctors and, you know, human clinicians are remarkably proficient at doing that. And I would say that that is required to, like, really understand the context of a patient, you know, the context uh, of the healthcare system as well. And that in turn helps you provide care more effectively. Um, so if we want to be using AI in such scenarios and such situations, then these models do need to be multimodal in nature. And that's what we are building towards. And now, how exactly do you do this? How do you make you know large language models multimodal? I think there are a variety of approaches where I think the trade-offs are like, how much data do you have? How much compute do you have? And I think many people have proposed a lot of different ideas. But for us, I think in many ways, we like to set the bar high and we, have, we like to go after the most ambitious problem. And for that, the most ambitious version of the problem felt like you know building a journalist biomedical AI agent that just with the same set of model weights, the same set of parameters can solve a bunch of different biomedical tasks, can encode and interpret a bunch of different biomedical modalities. And so this uh, has been something that has not been previously done before. People um, have shown the concept of a generalist agent in other domains. Uh, DeepMind famously, I think a couple of years back, showcased Gato, which had, I think, 600 different tasks uh, spanning a variety of modalities, uh, actions, observations, and beyond. Um, and they showed that the same model could not only like you know chat with you, uh, caption your images, uh, but also be used as the policy model for a robot that you know stacks blocks, the policy model for an agent that plays Atari games. And so... That was impressive, but I think there are unique challenges in medicine just because of the nature of the data and the nature of modalities that you're dealing with. And so in that sense, while there has there was precedence, and again, we built on top of another system known as Palm-E, which was more recent, but very similar in flavor to Gato, the fact that you know there are unique challenges inherent in medicine and biomedical data. So that was, I would say, the uncertainty associated with this. Yeah, I think to answer your question uh, directly, we um, included data from uh, dermatology, pathology, um, chest X-ray, mammography, and also genomics, in addition to um, clinical text. All the modalities converted into um, an image that is um, digested by the model. Most of those images, I have like a reasonable, you know, intuition for what they are. Right, I can picture, and I assume listeners can picture an X-ray, and you know, can probably we did an episode actually about virtual tissue staining which was fascinating. And, you know, if anybody heard that, then they certainly should have a, a memory of kind of what a pathology, you know, image from a, a tissue on a slide under a microscope would look like. As I was going through this, I didn't have an intuition, though, for the genomic data. There sounds like there's a little bit of kind of a trick or something, you know, maybe it's standard in the field, but I wasn't familiar with representing genomic data in image form and kind of had no intuition for how that would work. Yeah, so we had brilliant collaborators from the genomics teams at Google. So they have um, developed deep variant model, which is the state of the art variant calling model um, used in the field. So what they did is they converted in the genomic sequence into um, a 3D tensor that can be um, digested by uh, inception type of vision network. So we borrowed um, the idea from uh, their model, and then we did some reshaping in order to make the image compatible with our um, vision transformer encoder. In our team, I think, dating back to, again, 2018, 2019, uh, the genomics Google Health team has been building out the system known as Deep Variant that's used for variant calling. The way they did this was actually cast that problem into an image classification problem, because back then, that's what you know, deep learning models were really good at. We were very good at like computer vision and I think LLMs did not just yet catch catch up. 
And so the first version of these models used inception systems and later on ResNets as well. And so this clever encoding of you know genomic signals and data uh, in the form of like image representations helped with that task. And the models were actually really, really good. And so if you look at the performance of these systems, uh, they are really accurate. And so the FDA runs a challenge known as Precision FDA Challenge. And I think for a couple of years, uh, I may not be getting the details right, but this system won the challenge. And maybe another bit of detail over here is more recently, so there was this effort from uh, a bunch of researchers at Stanford led by uh, Professor Yuan Ashley. And they had this uh, system that set a world record for sequencing variants and you know calling out you know what might lead to a particular disease. And they set the world record for that. And so one of the key components in that system in addition to all the innovations that's been in general going around like you know really fast uh, real-time sequencing has been this variant calling system that really helps in you know improving the accuracy of the reads that you have and so that was like uh, something that was celebrated i think it was published in the new england journal of medicine and so this component this variant calling system was a key part of that if i understand correctly then it's genomic data that is encoded in an image and then the output of that is like a sort of i guess it's, it was more of a classification originally, like this is a, you know, unusual sequence, or this is a, a sequence that is, you know, likely to be problematic, because it's unusual. But now you guys are doing that in a, a much more holistic way, right? Like now it's not just a classification scheme. So did you essentially recreate that capability in the course of this palm fine tuning there? You didn't like actually bring any any weights or anything right from that prior work? Yeah, that, that is correct. Um, so all this was trained from scratch in addition to all the other tasks that we had uh, in medical imaging and doing medical question answering from text and beyond. I think one of the nice things about the, the generative setup that we have with large language models is everything can then be framed as a generative task. And so even classification problems, which were previously, you know, you were outputting a vector encoding probabilities of different classifications. Now you can just have a language model and say, well, oh, I think this is a suspected variant, or I think this is like this disease in dermatology or whatever. So it just unifies everything and provides language as a common grounding. And we can get into this in more detail, but that gives you a lot of advantages. We didn't really build on any previous specialized model um, weights. So what we did actually build on was the, the weights from the PUMP-E model, which is the, the backbone of vision language um, foundation journalist model that, we, that was originally uh, designed for robotic tasks. Yeah, and maybe very quickly to add to that, that did not have any medical domain fine-tuning. Um, so it did not see any dermatology images or these genomic variant images and uh, any medical text. Um, and so when we looked at the out-of-the-box performance, and that was one of the baselines that we compared to as a generalist model without any medical domain fine-tuning, the model was not very good at all. And so that in turn shows the importance of medical domain fine-tuning, medical data, and medical specialization if you want these kind of systems. Yeah, that's super interesting. So Paul Mee, it was basically to help robots move around the kitchen and like pick up, you know, objects and follow directions, right? So yeah, it's amazing how all this stuff is kind of just, I don't want to say easy to recombine, but I want to hear a little bit more about this, your kind of successes and, and maybe some failures too, because just the pace at which you guys are coming out with these results, it feels to me from the outside, like everything's working. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. And you know, that probably isn't quite literally true. But when you set out to do this project a few months ago, were you guys like, pretty confident that this was going to work and get basically here? Or did you actually have, you know, doubt in your heart of hearts that, you know, hey, maybe this still won't work? 
I would have been betting. I think if I was you, I would have been betting on it working pretty well. And, but I'm wondering, you know, if there's actually more uncertainty in what is possible, you know, when you're in the trenches doing the work. I think at a high level, you are right. The fact that, you know, systems such as Gato and Palmy and Flamengo and various others existed pointed us that this thing is doable. But I think it always comes down to the details and the devil is in the details. The other question is, okay, from like a scientific perspective, it is interesting to build a journalist agent that can, you know, broadly be competent at a bunch of different tasks. But then the other question is, okay, like if you're looking forward, what is the utility of this? And today we have a lot of specialist systems. For example, there's a highly accurate, you know, mammography breast cancer screening system that's being used in clinical trials across the world. And so if you want to use this journalist agent, you need to be able to like perform at that same uh, level. And so that's kind of the key question, like, okay, from a scientific perspective, it's it's interesting, but like you also have to think about the utility. And so that was the other question that we were trying to answer. Uh, so A, can we, you know, make this journalist agent perform at the same level as these narrow specialist models that you have, which have been like really, really customized and fine-tuned with a lot of effort, with a lot of compute, with a lot of, you know, brain power and make it reach the same level of performance. And then the second thing is, the other hypothesis is like, as you start, you know, training these journalist agents to encode a lot of different biomedical data at scale, can you see, you know, interesting phenomena such as like, you know, uh, positive trust transfer or combinatorial generalization that emerges as you use language as a common grounding to interpret different modalities and solve different tasks? Uh, can you do more effective few shot learning? Can you do more effective multimodal reasoning? And so I think those are the other things that we were hoping we would see, but then one of the difficulties with AI systems, especially at this scale, is, I mean, you may have hypothesis, but then you have to build out these systems first. And that often takes a lot of compute. And again, Tao can tell you more about all the details that went into it, all the knobs that he had to tune uh, to make the system really, really work. And so and if you get like some of these details wrong, then you won't get what you expect. And so that's maybe where always the challenge and the uncertainty is. Yeah, I think for us, it's a continuous learning process, even like now uh, when the paper is out. Like Vivek mentioned, there are um, different options of the model, foundation model choices for um, a biomedical journalist model. For example, PAM-E and also Parley, which is also by a large foundation model, vision language model by Google. I think um, the choice of model kind of also depends on what the data set we have and importantly, what kind of tasks that we want the model to perform. So there are some pros and cons to um, different model architectures, and maybe we can come back to that um, later. So I think one thing uh, that I do want to highlight is, um, so for, for the MEPOM um, M, we did not really fine-tune the model with multiple images during training. I think this is something certainly um, is important for a lot of biomedical applications, um, especially if you want to look at a longitudinal um, change. Yeah, and maybe just to add a quick detail over there is the reason for doing that is uh, mostly uh, compute reasons, because if you have multiple images, then you have to encode them and get the representations. And so that adds a little bit more compute. And so if you can teach the model the notion of like an image without actually giving it a real image, then that just makes it practically more efficient to train. And so we decided to use that regime. And then if uh, you look into the paper, we show that that is actually quite effective. And so even if you don't give the model an actual image, but then just use these tags uh, for an image in the few short instruction, that is still useful enough for the model to understand the context. And in turn, the model can generalize to scenarios where 
you start giving the model actually multiple images such as you know multiple views of a chest x-ray uh, multiple views of a mammogram or like you know previous cases of um, your radiology images or whatever and so that was one of the tricks again that we used and so ultimately i think these days in many ways you know training large language models foundation models multimodal models it just comes down to you know assembling a reasonable bag of tricks and you know putting them to do in together in such a manner that you're not using a whole lot of compute and based on the data uh, you can end up building like a system that's hopefully well optimized for a task that you want to be solving and you care about so there's not a lot of i would say you know secret new knowledge it's all about like putting these tricks together in the right way in the right format and then once you start putting all of them and they start accumulating and that leads to these outsized improvements and i think that's true for not just this work but also palmy palm and also for other systems uh, outside gpt4 i think people who build that they'll also tell you the same set of things yeah there's certainly a lot of know-how you know that seems to accumulate in these leading organizations and and certainly you know for the uh this is not really the topic of today's conversation but if if one is looking for moats you know the, the incredible know-how that the team has that applies all these little detailed nuanced tricks in the effective way you know so it's, it's a pretty good place to look Tell me about the team, actually, because, you know, there's 50 or so authors on this paper, and I believe the two of you are the first and the last name uh, listed in the, the author role. How does the team, like, you know, take me through the whole thing, maybe, like, how does a project like this at Google get decided upon in the first place? Like, how does a team get assembled? Presumably, this is not, like, a specific unit of hierarchy within Google. I imagine it must, you know, cross all sorts of organizational lines and different kinds of expertise. So I'd love to hear how you kind of bring a team like this together and what the what the roles are and who manages it, because it sounds pretty complicated. I think one of the nice things about, uh, you know, working at Google is the fact that in many ways, organizational boundaries and uh, hierarchies do not exist. So again, there was no like real top-down mandate that you have to do this. It's more like, you know, a bunch of researchers getting together and feeling that, oh, this is tractable and possible and we should do this. And then, you know, the right set of people with the right expertise just coming together, uh, working together uh, for a period of time with intensity, with like a collective spirit. And then that happens. And then the other thing is, again, uh, when you want to do these things the right way, especially in the medical domain, uh, there's a lot of details say around, you know, data set access, uh, around policy and legal. And typically when you're writing, you know, these papers, you tend to ignore those contributions uh, in, uh, you know, uh, when you're considering who should be a paper author and who should be not. But we don't believe that. We believe that that's also an important part of doing things the right way. And their contributions of, say, people who are providing program management support or product management support are equally as important as, you know, the machine learning researchers and engineers uh, and the clinicians who are helping, you know, frame the problem and build out the systems. And so in that sense, when you want to do things the right way, where you want to ensure that, you know, the data sets that you're using, you have the right licenses to it, there's no like copyright violations and you can use them onward and so on and so forth, you know, quickly requires a village to start doing these things, these things the right way. And so that is what we try to ensure and stress. And so in some ways, I mean, ensuring that, you know, people are acknowledged and included in papers is the least we can do because that work is equally important. Yeah, I think that is why you see like, you know, papers with a lot of authors, because it's really a cross-functional effort, especially when it comes to medicine. And uh, then the other thing is, again, 
we are not doing this in vacuum. We are not training these models from scratch. Um, but rather, we are building on top of like you know the authors of Farm and Farm E. So, for example, you can see uh, Pete Florence and Danny and Akansha Chaudhary uh, on this paper, and they've been like incredible sources of support for us, uh, bouncing off ideas, telling us what to do, what not to do, and they all care about the medical domain, but maybe they don't have the time to like you know push deeply on this, and so it ends up being a very nice collaboration. And so that's why you see a big author list, basically. Yeah, one thing I want to add um, to that is we also receive tremendous amount of help from our in-house clinicians, which is critical to do um, any biomedical um, applications because we need fast and accurate feedback for us to be able to do um, model iterations and give us um, directions. I think in the MedPalm-M in particular, we are working with a radiologist, Chuck. So he have been providing tremendous insights on the model-generated um, readings on the chest X-ray images. I think we use him as a successful metric, like his input. Yeah, um, maybe another quick detail is actually Chuck helped craft the prompt for uh, the chest X-ray task. And so if you look at it, it's very detailed and it's like crafted as if how a radiologist would actually, you know, interpret an image, like look at different parts, uh, how you like, you know, collate the findings and summarize the findings and how, what you should look for. And so it's very detailed. Uh, the nice thing is we have models today that can follow such language instructions to a high degree of accuracy. And the other thing is we have clinicians who can then help us craft these instructions and provide the human intuition in like, you know, language form. And so, yeah, that's just the best of both worlds bringing together and helping push things along over here. And maybe the final thing I would add is uh, the incentives are also different over here. Uh, like it's not a zero sum game anymore. And also science as an endeavor, especially in AI, the way it has evolved, it's no longer, I think, an individual doing brilliant things like say Einstein did in physics like 100 years back but rather like you know groups of people coming together and building awesome stuff and the more we are able to like you know empower groups of people to come together and build things fast but also effectively I think the better it is and you know and ensuring that you know that the mechanisms for that exist is great and I think in many ways I think DeepMind and OpenAI they set the standard over here for that and we just hope to replicate because I think that's going to be the future for AI and so there's no need to play zero-sum games over here we can be you know very generous with inclusion and authorships. And so that's not some, that's, I think, one of the benefits of being in industry savers as an academia, but that's a little bit more challenging. So the breakdown is like, it's kind of everybody that's involved in all these roles. So you've got like literal doctors that are also Google employees that are providing the expertise. You've got legal, you know, that's handling all the kind of licensing and whatnot, as you said, you've got infrastructure engineers, you've got, you know, potentially people that focus specifically on like data set preparation. How many at the end of the, you know, once all these other roles are are carved out, how many like, you know, down the fairway ML researchers are on this project? It's hard to put a number exactly on that. Uh, I would say it's probably eight or 10 maybe uh, who have like strong and deep ML expertise. But also one of the nice things is we have people who are fluid. And so uh, like someone who, for example, is doing infrastructure is not only doing that work, but they also tend to be equally competent at like, you know, training models and building models at scale. So the roles are kind of fluid in that sense. Like once people come onto the project, they'll just do everything that it takes to like make it succeed. Yeah. And also one detail that, um, so compute is always like a resource. So not um, multiple people can run the experiments simultaneously. So that's something you have to plan ahead of time, especially when you're training the bigger models. This pathways framework, right? This is the, when people talk about palm, the P in palm stands for pathways. 
And I don't really know what that is. It, if I took my best guess, it would be like, it sounds like it's a framework for tapping into compute. Google has its own chip, the TPU, you know, which is kind of a, an alternative and proprietary AI-focused chip, as I understand it, that's not, um, doesn't do all the graphic stuff, but is specifically optimized for AI workloads. You know, what is Pathways? And, and tell us about the process of compute. Like from the outside, you know, one would maybe imagine that like, Compute is effectively unlimited at uh, Google, or at least for projects like this. But it sounds like maybe not not so simple as that. I think Pathways was kind of like uh, Jeff Dean's dream and vision, uh, and many others have worked on it, including Akansha, who's a co-author on this paper. At a high level, it's uh, a large-scale ML orchestration system that allows you to train giant multitask, multimodal models on like you know thousands of accelerator chips, which in Google's case, more often than not, turns out to be TPUs that are, you know, optimized for this. We could probably spend like another full episode, you know, talking about pathways and the magic behind it and the infrastructure and everything that goes into it. But I think at a high level, what is happening is, you know, if you look at, you know, large language models today, they have this transformer base and transformers are mostly a lot of matrix multiplications, matmults, and the combination of jacks. XLA, uh, which is, uh, uh, I mean, short for accelerated linear algebra, it's a compiler that allows you to you know, port you know, code written in JAX to multiple different accelerators and distribute the code uh, across them. And that with TPUs that are optimized for AI workloads, it turns out to be like really, really magical because they're really, really optimized for doing the computations effectively and also the communications that you need to be able to do uh, when you're training these systems at scale. And when I say communications, it means, you know, splitting out the models, passing along activations and gradients between them and so on and so forth. And so that system as a whole is really, really well optimized. We can go into a lot of details of, you know, what makes JAX really, really special as well from a developer perspective. Like, for example, the NumPy interface that allows you to, you know, hack things at a low level or you know, stuff like autograd and, you know, just-in-time compilation that we have or our auto-vectorization, uh, all those sorts of features that, you know, make JAX really uh, a really good system. But, like, if you were to just, you know, zoom out and look at it from a high level, it's just the, if the effectiveness of that framework and the co-optimization with the hardware that allows you to train these transformer models really, really effective at scale with, you know, the kind of compute that you have access to at Google. We, we, we did an episode with uh, a couple of guys from Mosaic ML not too long ago, and they've got a lot of uh, lot of different things to bring to the table. But one big value driver of that company is, hey, we give you a really high level abstracted way to think about defining what it is you want to do with the data set and an optimization you know target, and then you can kind of hit run and all the stuff below that of coordinating the different devices and making sure that the data flows as it needs to flow. You really don't have to worry about that. And obviously, you know, that company's had a, <laughs> a good outcome since the time that we had that episode. So it sounds like Pathways is basically the internal Google version of that, such that today, and this is like, you know, very, you know, I, I get why, why you're saying standing on the shoulders of giants, because if you had to do that, Every time, obviously, you'd be probably 100 times longer in delivering a project like this. But it sounds like you get to work at a pretty high level. If I understood correctly, it even sounds like it's hardware versatile or agnostic as well, right? Like it could be TPUs, but it could be something else. And you don't even have to worry about that from the high level. 
Yeah, that is right. I think that's where the flexibility of Jax kind of helps. So you can, you know, work using this Jax NumPy interface that gives you low-level hackability, but then you can also zoom out and use, you know, depending on the project and the choice uh, that you make, like with Flax or Pax, which is more uh, optimized for using these pathway systems and for, you know, architecting models and annotating them such that, you know, the model can be with effective model and data parallelism be effectively mapped onto the physical hardware that you have for training. So there's all these layers of abstraction that you can work with. And more often than not, because of how the system has been architected, you don't have to worry about these details, especially for, you know, me and Tao and others, we were working on this. We are, you know, more in the applications realm in the product realm. But then sometimes when you are training these models at scale, you would, for example, run into spikes and losses, or you may run into non-determinism or stuff like that, where, for example, you need to maybe be able to be zoom in and like, you know, be able to rerun certain steps and you want to have determinism for that or you may want to for example ensure that the data set the batches that you're using they're all deterministically shuffled so that like you can recreate that checkpoint and stuff like that that you know helps with debuggability uh, so all those features exist but then again uh, the, again the nice part about this being a collaboration is we can very quickly for example as a concha who's been doing this for several years now about all these details and that helps us you know move really really fast it sounds like the actual project here might not even be like that many lines of code uh, like the core sort of model training loop is maybe able to be somewhat simple dare you know dare i imagine it might even be elegant if you are kind of you know you've got obviously giant data set that you had to assemble a lot of work there you've got this tower of computing management that you know already exists and then you're kind of bringing those together Am I right on this, that it's actually not maybe that much code that kind of pulls together a giant data set and a giant pool of compute now that all those pieces are in place? We train the model on each single task individually with the uncertainty that we don't know if we are mixing all these things together, it would maintain the performance that we get from training them separately. So we started out doing a lot of experiment on each task individually and also figuring out the best setup. I think Vivek mentioned that we use this text-only one-shot um, exemplar as an, a way of uh, giving the instruction and an example for the model to know how it should um, craft its response. So there's a lot of um, experiments to be done on each different um, data sets. We also tried different setup in um, our task mixture. For example, um, for the chest um, X-ray generation task, we have Chuck providing us very detailed instructions on how the model should um, write the report. But for other um, simpler tasks, for example, classification on the monography, we didn't have that. So um, I would say it's a lot of trial and errors. And when you're actually putting all these things together, the immediate question that we encounter is how do we address the proportion of each task? So because um, the data set um, varies in sizes, if the model only sees um, the majority of that stitches X-ray, would that be um, very biased towards um, this grayscale image? That probably would um, degrade the task performance on the genomic images. So there are a lot of design choices and experiments that we have to run to tune these hyperparameters. Um, and also from a computational uh, stability point of view, um, there's something we also encountered in practice, even though this system is fairly like mature, but when we um, assemble all everything together, we encountered gradient instability. So we have to apply some clever 
tricks to uh, stabilize the gradient uh, for the model to be uh, trained properly. Yeah, so maybe just to summarize, uh, perhaps the number of significant lines of code uh, is not that big, uh, and given especially we have like you know existing models that we can fork off and build over here, uh, and the infrastructure is already fairly robust. But then you know getting the model to actually train and behave well, and the number of uh, choices that Tao highlighted, and I think that's still a very small compared to the actual number of details that we had to go through over here. Uh, yeah, the, the number of experiments that we had to run and manage to get these details right, and then you know transfer that over to you know when you're training up, say the 64, or the 84 billion model, or the 540, 562 billion model that you have. That is, I think, where the bulk of the work is. And then the other big part of the project is obviously the human evaluation, uh, setting up the infrastructure for that, the the user interface for that, and doing all the studies around that is where I think. Uh, the other area where a lot of like coding and uh, software engineering comes into the picture, in addition to the clinician inputs and everything. Yeah, so the model behaves kind of different when it's like small scale versus large scale. I think um, when I look back on the experimental log, I think I ran like 300 experiments in the past like four months to do this paper. So in practice, as you're doing this, there's three model sizes that are reported on in the paper. And I think it's interesting to note also that these parameters are kind of now being summed, you know, as I'm reading through, I'm like, okay, we got the Palm 8B, and then there's the VIT 4B, VIT is the vision model. So those come together, and they become Palm E12B. And I do find it pretty interesting, you know, I don't want to overinterpret something like this. But the fact that these parameters are now just being kind of summed, even though it was like, you know, a language model and a vision model, and now they just kind of merge, and now they're all, you know, working together. I mean, it's amazing how well these things kind of snap together, you know, in, in all kinds of reconfigurations. But when you're doing this in practice, are you starting with the, the 8 plus 4 equals 12B model? And, you know, that's where your 300 experiments are running. You're like, I'm going to kind of set up. So if I'm, if I'm taking myself through your, I imagine this was what, a six-month project? You kind of start off by saying, I'm going to take this, you know, we got to get the data set obviously together. And we already have this, you know, giant compute management stack that I can build on top of. But the first thing we got to do is take a small one, run one task at a time, make sure it's working, you know, tune some hyperparameters. What's the learning rate? Well, you know, where are these instabilities coming in? Iron out those kinds of details okay, now each individual task like seems like it's working. Now let's try, you know, running multiple tasks. Let's like experiment with the mix and on and on you go. And this does seem to be one of the huge things that has also proven to be pretty general is the idea that you can generalize. I mean, it's, it's you can't fully generalize, right? Like I, I find that I, I always go back to the GPT-4 technical report on this because, you know, they show that insanely smooth curve that predicts the loss of systems as they grow and you know they ultimately predict gpt4 loss i think with the biggest model used to predict it being only one ten thousandth the size of the final gpt4 model and so you know this the loss becomes like incredibly predictable which is insane how how smooth those curves sometimes are but then you do still have this kind of but so what, <laughs> you know, kind of question, like, what is that actually going to translate to in terms of behavior? You know, we can maybe say what the, we think the loss is going to be, and we might even be right. But does that mean it's going to, you know, be able to do these kind of 
generalizations that you know we kind of hope for but don't really know. So tell me a little bit more about that story. I mean, fill in, fill in some more of the gaps as to what your researcher experience is like beyond what I just imagined. What you outlined is spot on for you know text only large language models. Uh, in the sense that from you know lower sizes of models, you can start predicting you know to a pretty high degree of accuracy what the loss would be for a large model. But then as soon as you start going into multimodal realms where you're trying to build, bring in different building blocks together that have been optimized separately and now you're trying to fuse them together, then I think that becomes far more challenging. You lose some of that predictive power. And um, it also happens that you know depending on the data sets that you're training on, how you scale up these components together, uh, matter and right now we're only dealing with vision and language but you can in the future imagine so many more different modalities that will have the specialist encoders so if there is say some amount of mismatch in the capacity uh, and it is true that in you know uh, both palm e and in MedPalm m there is actually a giant mismatch especially as we scale up the models and that's why i would say we don't see the expected gains in performance on some tasks that you might expect because the language capacity uh, has been scaled in a very disproportionate manner to the vision capacity and so the vision in turn ends up being a bottleneck and that in turn you know limits the uh, overall model performance on some of these tasks um, so I would say that's maybe uh, one of the challenges that you encounter as soon as you start going into multimodal realms. You know, things become much more uncertain. You, and then you're trying to like, you know, okay, the, the only way out of this is actually just to experiment and see uh, what happens. There are um, multiple components in the multimodal system, the vision encoder, the language model, but most importantly, there's alignment layer. This alignment layer um, projects the image token into the same space as language. That's why um, Palm E has this flexibility to um, construct these multimodal sentences um, that is um, interleaved text and image tokens and can be processed uniformly by the language decoder. So um, when we think about scaling on some of the classification tasks where the language capacity is not really um, needed much, um, I think we didn't really um, observe a gain when we scale up the language model. And also another source of variability is this vision encoder, vision transformer was pre-trained on natural images. So they have not really seen much um, medical image, which has a complete different distribution than the natural images during the training. So the transfer learning on the vision encoder can also um, result in the, the bottleneck from the vision side. So I think just properly study the effect of scaling, we kind of need to isolate each component separately. And that requires um, a lot more like large scale medical data because we first need to demonstrate that we can actually adapt the vision encoder to medical domain well before we even connect it into the language model. So I think a lot of things um, you can only know after you do the experiments. So it's really hard to predict and um, borrow the knowledge that we have gained from the language model domain, because for language model, even though you are switching from medicine to uh, law, the text token is still in the same um, domain. It's just a different context. So there's a number of fascinating things there. One, just to make sure everybody's clear on the results, you know, going through the paper, I was definitely struck by this, that the mids, there's three tiers, right, of, of model. There's the 12, the, the 84, and the 562B. And one would naturally expect that the 562 would be, you know, the best because it's the biggest. But in reality, it wasn't really so clear. It seemed like it was kind of more or less even between the, 
the middle size and the largest size. And if I understand correctly what you're saying, the understanding of that result is that vision model, because across the two, the, the, the medium and the large, the language part of the model, the palm part got bigger, but the VIT part did not get bigger because the biggest one there is the 22B. So the idea is that if you, you're, you're basically limited by the power of that, not only because of its just general size, but maybe even more to the point that it didn't have much in the way of medical content in its pre-training. So you're kind of starting from something where it had basically very limited knowledge on that side of the of the overall system. Yeah, so that is correct. And that ends up being the bottlenecks. And so a good example of these, uh, like the bottleneck over here is in the classification tasks where the output for the language model is something very simple, like saying, for example, oh, this dermatology image has uh, evidence of eczema, for example. So the space uh, of tokens that the model needs to generate is fairly limited. And so there's not much scope for language understanding and reasoning. But then to really do this task really well, you have to like, you know, understand the image, look at patches and signs and you know pathologies of different presentations of diseases. Uh, and that in turn requires a very powerful vision encoder. And so that is why this ends up being a model like safe the model's too small or has not been trained properly or has not seen enough medical domain data. And so those are the tasks where you see like, you know, the gap like really uh, becomes small between say the 84B model and the 562B model. Yeah, and also a practical constraint um, in training all the tasks simultaneously is all the input image um, needs to be in the, the same shape. That certainly creates some um, bottleneck for the chest X-ray report generation because um, the image size that we fit into the model um, is fairly small compared to uh, most of the state-of-the-art uh, chest X-ray report generation specialized model that they would use. These are all details that matter. And so in the end, I, I think that what we have shown so far is, that is why we call this a proof of concept. Uh, but like, I think there are all these little knobs that you can tune and we know how to tune them that I think is significantly going to improve the performance of these systems. So hopefully the next iterations as we have over here, where we can, you know, for example, adaptively, you know, process images at different scales with different resolutions, change the number of tokens that you have uh, for the different modalities. That's going to like, you know, make a lot of difference in addition to just purely improving the language model capacity and the vision capacity and bringing in more data. Yeah, it sounds like we're not at the end of the paradigm uh, just yet by a, by a long shot. How just roughly speaking, like how much data and how much compute are we talking here? I mean, I've you know kind of looked at the range of fine tuning relative to base model, and these days that range you know is pretty huge. Where on the very low end, you know, a few dozen examples can kind of fine tune your, you know, it's almost like you get down to few shot territory, right? It's, it, there's a spectrum from few shot up to pre-training and you can be fine-tuning in a, a pretty wide, like several orders of magnitude, you know, are kind of in that fine-tuning bucket. So was this something where it was like 1%, you know, more compute relative to, you know, all that had already been poured into the, the models that you started with or 10% more compute relative to the base? How do you think about the relative compute investment? So there are two things. One thing is purely in terms of the number of tokens that you have, and I'm clubbing in image tokens with text tokens. Uh, I would say that's not a lot. Uh, 
in aggregate across the benchmark, uh, the number of samples that we had was roughly in the order of uh, 1 million. And then if you were to take on average maybe 10, 20 uh, tokens per uh, sample, then you're probably ending up with like 20 million tokens or something like that. That's very small in general compared to like, you know, the billions of tokens that go into like training the base model. Yeah, Palm is like a trillion-ish tokens, right? I mean, the, the original Palm, if I recall correctly, is order magnitude trillion. That's right. So I think the paper, they say 760 billion, but yeah. Um, I think one thing to add, because the image, one image um, will be converted into 256 um, tokens. So I think the 20 tokens of Vivek mentioned is probably only on the text side. Yeah, roughly somewhere, yeah, you, you depending on the exact data, 1 million into 20 or 200, and you get the number of tokens, but it's still fairly small. Then I think in terms of compute, uh, training these models, I would like to think it's more in the 1% to 10% realm of training the base model. One of the factors that come into play over here is also, you know, the more chips that you have access to, uh, and we are training with TPU V4 chips over here, uh, you know, the faster your speed of iterations are as well. And so in that sense, that is maybe something that's disproportionate between the base model uh, and the fine tuning that you can do in the sense that we may end up, you know, for different reasons for access, of, because say, uh, we have access to different kinds of compute, um, we may end up having a different uh, you know, chip configuration or the number of chips that we end up using. And so that sometimes plays a part uh, and that in turn also impacts the iteration speed over here. But I think the order of magnitude is roughly between one to 10%. So how fast is that cycle time? I guess I'm interested in that on the, when you're running your 300 experiments, I mean, a 12B model, if I had to guess, I would guess that you have kind of discretionary access to that level of compute and like probably don't need to go, you know, reserving or anything. And I would guess those also return by the time you come back with a new cup of coffee or is it maybe not quite that fast? I think on average, it takes a couple of hours to finish training with the 12B model. So it's fairly fast. And sometimes I don't have to run the experiment like to the end to be able to know if I want to um, like make any change. That completely depends on the number of chips that you have access to. So if you don't have enough number of chips, for example, if you have, say, one-tenth the number of chips, then that two hours will become like two weeks. So certainly uh, there's easy knob that we can like turn is uh, turn off the data parallelism. So basically running multiple copies on uh, different segments of the entire data set, that's going to give us significant uh, improving uh, efficiency. Yeah, this is a good point because I think people are aware of the fact that this is a parallelizable process, but the way you're parallelizing here with data parallelism is you're essentially, while still in the training, I mean, people maybe have a little bit more intuition for this in the inference side of things, but still in the training process, you're basically saying, I'm going to copy the model a number of times. We will run the training process itself in parallel and then there's, you know, you kind of collect all the gradients and all the adjustments you want to make to the weights. And then you basically just sum those, right? And kind of the next round starts with like the sum of all those gradients found across all the different copies. So that's pretty much, you know, I guess there's there's maybe some loss of efficiency there in the sense that like, you know, all these different gradients, if you did them sequentially, maybe they would kind of approach the goal a little bit faster. But the dominant effect, obviously, is that the parallelism speeds you know, it up roughly speaking by like how many copies you have, I guess, right? If you're going to do now, okay, done, you know, ton of experience, it's time to really start to do the experiments on the big model. Is that like now a few days to run one round of, 
of the 562? Like, I'm, I'm really interested in how fast you can iterate, because that seems like it's going to be a huge driver of how fast you're going to solve all these other little remaining issues that we've been, you know, touching on. With the compute that we have available, it's on the order of weeks. It's incredible. Everything is kind of going, you know, exponential at the same time. And just also the iteration cycle dropping to, you know, hours for significant scale experiments and then weeks for like the full full palm E562B scale. That is um, it's probably an underappreciated fact of the entire progress. It's just like you're able to run so many more experiments than people could run a couple of years ago. But maybe one detail over here is as you scale up these models, the other factor is more often than not, you're not going to be able to fit them onto a single chip. And so there is model parallelism that comes in. Uh, and so now you're sharding the different parts of the model across different chips. And then you, in addition to that, you have data parallelism. So it's like a 3D mesh in many ways. And we like to call that a mesh system over here. And PAX is the framework in which we define the mesh for the model. So that's another factor because as you're scaling up, the number of chips that you need to like efficiency, efficiently run these uh, training workloads also increases quite a bit and that adds in. Um, so we have to take all those factors into account when we are training these systems. Um, but in general, I think you are right that the the progress uh, in terms of both the hardware um, and the frameworks that we have allows us to like you know do things in general more fast than before but then if you're like you know scaling things up then that you know is um, an effect that is you know pushing you in the opposite direction so maybe the speed doesn't change that much because uh, while you're getting better uh, hardware and software you're also scaling up these models and in turn that just increases your training time i would also add maybe a couple of other things one is um, the fact that now I think there is generally going to be a push towards more uh, compute efficient approaches to like scaling these models, particularly in the multimodal setting. And so the more we can, for example, make use of, you know, specialist encoders that have been like really well-tuned for tasks, such as in you know, the VIT-22B that has been trained on like, I think close to a billion images uh, and graph that into a language model like Palm that has been trained separately, but again, on like a trillion tokens. And if you can figure out like, you know, compute efficient ways of doing that crafting process, I think that is going to be incredibly impactful because the, in general, there's a lot of competition for compute and you can, and the AI is like, you know, such a broad general purpose technology and you can see so many different safe and beneficial use cases spanning, not just, you know, biomedicine, but also like energy and climate change and beyond. And so people would want to like, you know, make use of these systems. And so that there is in turn like contention for resources. The underlying message is even at places like Google, uh, efficient approaches will trump out. And so that's something we hope to build. And maybe Tao can say more over here on this. Yeah, please do. One question I specifically did have on that uh, efficiency point is the approach here is an end-to-end fine-tuning, right? So all 562 billion parameters are subject to change. There's also kind of another class of approaches that seem to be, have their, I'm sure, pros and cons in all sorts of different, you know, nuanced ways. But uh, from a compute perspective, these kind of like bridge or adapter uh, structures are also often like quite effective. So you know, did you guys consider doing something like that where you'd say, hey, instead of, you know, messing with all 562, why don't we just, you know, layer, insert another 10B at the end and kind of, you know, do the last kind of adaptation of the weights or whatever. I mean, so obviously simplifying there, you know, we've seen a lot of those things work. So did you consider an approach like that? So we actually tried uh, even in our uh, end-to-end fine tuning where you can phrase the language model and only tune the vision or do only phrase the vision um, 
and tune the language model or freeze both vision and language model and only tune the alignment layer. So there are different choices. Um, I think I ran some experiments uh, when I freeze the language model and only tune the vision and alignment. And I think what I've seen preliminary evidence is I think the convergence um, rate is um, slower. So it takes longer time for the model to reach the performance um, that I get when I fully fine tune everything. But it does generally kind of work. Yeah, I think in the Palm E paper, they also did the frozen language model version. I think this is also some experience that we have gained over the development of uh, MetPalm. For MetPalm 1, we did uh, prompt tuning, which is a efficient uh, parameter and data efficient tuning methods. And then for um, Palm 2, we did the full end-to-end fine tuning. So I think um, empirical, the evidence that we have observed is actually full um, end-to-end fine tuning gives you the best performance uh, lift, provided that you have at least a reasonable amount of data. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, it's also true, even when you compare like low rank approaches such as LoRa for fine tuning, uh, it turns out that if you can do end-to-end fine tuning without using LoRa, uh, with the same data, then I think convergence is faster and some the model quality also tends out to be generally faster. That's our empirical evidence at this point of time. Uh, so even though like people like to say LoRa is like, you know, for example, more compute efficient, like in terms of like the number of cycles that you spend optimizing with that approach versus say an end-to-end fine-tuning approach, it may turn out that the compute is actually kind of the same. The other thing that jumped out to me is, if I understand correctly, this is the original Palm that this is based on, right? As opposed to Palm 2. I guess if I had to guess, that's maybe just a function of the fact that Palm E was based on Palm, and so you're kind of building on. But there's a there's a couple of different tracks here, right? Is the next? If I what, I'm going to go ahead and title your next paper now, uh, multimodal Med Palm Two. Uh, so when can I expect that one to be uh, dropping? Yeah. So based on the learnings that we had from uh, the Med Palm M paper, I think we are exploring different approaches where we can achieve the same uh, journalist. Uh, biomedical AI. I think one example is what Vivek had said. Um, we take a more modular approach. We have these modality-specific encoders that might be small, like a CNN ResNet. And then we find ways to combine them with a shared language model. And we can take any state-of-the-art language models that we have and potentially um, get even like better performance um, in terms of, for example, instruction following and also um, augment the language model component with um, stronger conversational um, capability. So we might be able to unlock new um, capabilities for this biomedical journalist AI system. So maybe in addition to that, like I think the architectural details, uh, there's definitely a lot of low-hanging fruits in terms of how we approach the training as well as the components that we're using to you know, architect the overall system. But then the other question is also in general around utility and what you know capabilities that you're targeting with this channelist system. And so we're also broadly thinking about that. And so in that sense, uh, we would want to have you know the next version of the system not only be, you know, better than what we have today on the multi-band bench of tasks, but we want to expand that bench of tasks that we are considering uh, to maybe include more different kinds of uh, medical imagery or, you know, more biomedical data, such as, you know, data from different kinds of genomic sequences like proteomics. And so, so there's so much rich variety of data that, and tasks that we can start, you know, bringing into the system. And then again, the approaches are also, uh, there's, I think, a range of approaches 
ranging from tool use to adapter or grafting or bridge process to training these generalist agents with like end-to-end fine-tuning. And so the opportunity is there, but I think ultimately it comes down to what problem are you solving uh, with these systems. And I think that's the root problem that we, or the root question that we first ask before we you know embark on these giant model training runs or these giant projects. It seems like it's basically you know, can we create an AI doctor? I mean, is it as simple as that? Or how, how would you frame the, you know, the motivation for the next system at this point? It's no longer science fiction to think that that is possible. I would still say that we are very, very early, not just in terms of, you know, the technical development, like architecting the system and the model as a whole, but definitely in terms of like validating these solutions, verifying them, trialing them in, you know, real world settings. But for me, the most exciting part is it feels like that is all eminently possible and doable. And that all seems science fiction, maybe even just a few months back. Uh, but now I think that's all possible within a very reasonable time frame. And so I think that is the most exciting aspect. And maybe one of the other things is, again, like doctors today do a lot of different things. And hopefully we'll be able to like, you know, build AI systems that can be effective teammates for them, effective assistants for them, like mimic a lot of the tasks that they do and take a lot of the burden of them, like the administrative tasks and everything. But then the other impressive thing is, for example, these models can start doing things that maybe clinicians are not trained to do. Uh, like clinicians are not trained to interpret genomic data, for example, but you know, the scale at which we are able to like measure, uh, you know, fundamental genomic data from individuals at scale today that the cost of it is going down even faster than Moore's law and so that is going to be a signal that you know we want to be able to like repeatedly tap into in the future uh, and so we can have these AI systems in some ways actually be better than say human doctors today on that front like new modalities of data new signals that we are going to be able to like measure with a high degree of precision these models are going to be able to make sense of that and so that in some ways that's actually superhuman capacity and superhuman capacity to provide care and then maybe the last thing I would say is also as you start training these systems at scale with such diverse biomedical data the hope is in the process of doing that, you're going to be able to also fundamentally transform your understanding of human biology, of disease mechanisms, of disease disease trajectories. And hopefully that'll lead to new insights such as, you know, potential new biomarkers or, you know, different causative gene variants for say certain diseases that have been, you know, long, long-standing grand challenges or designing of new therapies. And so in some ways you're also building out like an AI biomedical research scientist or like a research assistant or something like that. And so the nice thing is, I think the base components of these systems, they can look like lead to all these different applications. And so I feel like, that is the most exciting aspect over here. One of the things that really jumps out in the paper is this notion of emergent capabilities. I'd love to just hear your comments on emergent capabilities. I also want to hear a little bit about kind of the next generation of validation, because you guys have done a lot of work on through multiple papers on creating these benchmarks and being very systematic. But it seems like maybe not quite yet with this one, but probably the next one. I'm wondering, at what point does it go to like, more of a clinical trial type of modality as well, where you'd say, look, I mean, we can characterize this thing a hundred ways, but, you know, at some point it is time, right? To be like, let's give it to people and see if they end up healthier, you know, than they were uh, if they didn't have it. And, you know, that seems like that time has got to be close at hand. So emerging capabilities and then kind of, you know, actual field clinical trial style validation. Yeah, I think Tao and I, we had a lot of debate about using the word emergent capabilities uh, in the paper, just given, you know, the wider debate in the community with the Mirage paper, for example, coming out. I don't know if Tao, you disagree with this. For me, emergent capabilities are just something that you did not predict would happen. 
or exist in the model that you're building. Um, it's maybe less about model scales per se, or whether there's a continuous or a discontinuous improvement in performance on some of these tasks or capabilities, uh, capabilities that you're looking at, but more about what unexpected new things are you seeing over here. And so maybe Tao can talk more about the TB example that we had in the paper. I think one interesting finding that we had from this journalist model is when the model was trained on um, chest X-ray images and with 14 prevalent clinical observations, such as um, the enlargement of the heart. But it's not, so TB is not a pathology label that we specifically trained the model on. But when we present another chest X-ray image, which is acquired from a different center, and the major uh, pathology is um, the TB, and then we prompt the model asking if there's any abnormality in the, in the image and ask the model to uh, generate um, explanations. So in this case, uh, describe the findings in the image. The model was able to actually characterize the correct uh, lesion type, which is capitary uh, lesion for uh, tuberculosis um, particularly, and also um, be able to identify the correct location um, in the image where the lesion is. But we also showed um, the caveats of the model because the model cannot really um, characterize every um, single um, lesions in the in the image. There might be some omissions, but we are excited that the model can actually identify the correct location of TB and also the right uh, lesion type. I think that's the benefit of the model probably have seen like literature um, on the TB and now it was able to generate um, reasonings conditioned on the visual input. Maybe I'll quickly add a couple more things. Uh, one is the I think we showed this in the paper as well is the number of examples that you need to actually teach the model the concept of TB. Uh, we show that that's actually zero for us because we're just able to like provide a language description of it. And so I think that is again coming down to the power of language where you mapping everything to language means you can start describing you know signals and other modalities, information and other other modalities just through language. And you know that really helps a lot with this kind of few short learning. Uh, maybe the other quick detail I'll point out is this definitely seems to be like an emergent capability because when we looked at the 8B model, uh, that was not capable of providing any sort of explanation or description over here. Uh, and, but as soon as you start you know, having a model that has more capacity to do nuanced language reasoning, uh, and so both with the 64B and the 562B model that we have, we see the ability to not only like you know make predictions about the presence or absence of TB in image, but also actually describe it to a degree that a radiologist would say is fairly accurate. So let me unpack how that works as I understand it. And you tell me if I am getting anything wrong here. The finding is you had 14 different types of radiology images that were used in training. Basically for each image, they are might be 14 different um, pathology labels, uh, different um, conditions that you might find in the in the chest degree. That's the prevalent ones and of um, clinical significance. There's 14 labels on the images that you're using in the training. Tuberculosis is not one of them. But you find that nevertheless, when presented with an image showing tuberculosis in the chest x-ray, the overall system can identify that. And not only that, but can identify the specific location in the image where it is found. So that's pretty amazing. You know, emergent capability per your definition of things you didn't predict. And I guess what's happening there is the language portion of the model understands, you know, has enough information about tuberculosis such that it is able to effectively interpret the image 
as it is projected into language space in the form of 256 tokens. I'm always fascinated by the fact that these, these projections end up in a place in language space that no actual language can access. But it must, you know, it is obviously communicating or, you know, transmitting information about like what is, is seen where in a way that, you know, it's also interesting to notice, you know, pictures worth a thousand words here. We've managed it with 256 tokens. Enough information is there and there's enough understanding of that information. So essentially it's kind of like the, the image portion is to the to the language because it, it's in this language space, right? I almost imagine it like I don't I don't like to anthropomorphize too much, but it's almost like it's whispering into the language parts ear, you know. Uh, in this you know portion, you see this thing, and in this portion, you see this thing, and all this kind of just visual data somehow in language space is enough, you know. And then then, then the model from there can kind of, kind of take it and be like, all right, well, if you're telling me that, then that sounds like tuberculosis. I mean, that really is pretty incredible, and I I have to say. The the, uh, the labeling that an emergent capability seems very reasonable to me. I don't know what else you'd really be looking for if you're looking if you you know what I mean. Do, tell me, I guess, what's the debate on that? You know, is there what's the case that that is not an emergent capability or that it, that that term is maybe just that the term is more trouble than it's worth? Yeah, I, I personally I just think that's a buzz <laughs> like word. So what would you say? I mean, or how would you, how do you think about the, I mean, is that a surprise to you when, when you found this result, were you guys surprised by it? So I am not like surprised by the model was able to identify TB, even though it's a chest x-ray image that is um, acquired from a different uh, like center, um, it's still chest x-ray. So somehow I think this image is still in distribution, even though it's a completely different medical concept. I think I would be, rather um, excited if actually we, we are doing like the additional analysis, for example, presenting the model with the founder's image that was not looking closely like any of the images that we put in the training and see if the model can actually characterize the image purely based on the language knowledge that it has um, accumulated during training. I have high expectation, so I want this to be um, as good as possible. Yeah, maybe just quickly uh, summarizing that. I think what we have shown so far is interpolation within the distribution of what models trained. And a lot of people still like to call that as creativity or intelligence. I know that Demis Sasavis likes to call that like, you know, level one uh, of creativity or intelligence. Uh, but I think what Tao is saying is he's more excited or interested to see if the model can extrapolate out outside of the space of distribution that it's trained on. And so once you start giving it out of distribution examples, like a fundus image, for example, can it still... Uh, you know, start doing these uh, novel multimodal reasoning in that space. Um, the early evidence, I would say, is promising, but I think we still have uh, ways to go with there. So hopefully more soon. So then going back to the clinical trial concept for a second, how close do you guys think you are to running not a sort of task level evaluation, but a more kind of system level evaluation? Definitely not just us within this room over here in this virtual room for this podcast who are well-placed to answer that. Uh, but also like us just within at Google are probably also not well placed to answer that. I think that's uh, actually a broader question around how we regulate these more generally capable AI systems, because the way in which we typically regulate 
you know, AI systems as medical devices, as software as a medical device, is we assume that they're only good at certain tasks. So they are these supervised systems that, for example, can only do this one task. And that, you know, we know the bounds of their capabilities, but that also allows us to, like, you know, put numbers around their effectiveness uh, and verify and validate them appropriately. But then as soon as you have, like, these generally capable systems, then the the interactions that you can have with that system just explodes and we don't have a reasonable method or like you can't basically retrofit the framework that you had for regulating say uh, supervised classification systems or single task systems into this framework of generally capable AI systems and so that doesn't exist today and I think that needs to come into the picture and so it's it's a conversation that's ongoing with you know people who have broad regulatory expertise say with the FDA with EU and different parts of the world but as things stand today we do not have that I think what you suggest is actually a very reasonable approach to take and maybe that is the approach that we go down the route of where, for example, we give a generally capable system such as MedPalm 2 to like a doctor or put it in the hands of people. And then just we run a controlled trial and look at health outcomes, say, after six months, a year and see if like, you know, people are just more healthy and feel like better about themselves and beyond. And maybe that's the way to go over here. But right now, as things stand, that's not how, you know, we are supposed to be regulating these AI systems because the FDA definition of what an AI system no longer fits with what we are building today. So do you think that you're blocked by current regulation from doing something like that or is it more that you you know not you obviously but like google as an as an institution wants to make sure that it has a you know a regulatory regime to fit into because you could imagine like uh, one attitude might be hey there's no you know specific law against this we're going to try and do it but another might be like, we want to make sure that there's like a law that says how to do it before we do it. With MedPalm 2, we are rolling out the model first to trust it, um, test users to gather feedback that can in turn uh, inform our model development to make it more safer and effective. So I would say it's like evolving. We are also like learning, um, navigating along the way. What happens if you ask it questions that are not at all about medicine or, you know, about something that's like, I imagine you know, in the mature version, you would want it to like refuse to be your lawyer, right? You would want it to refuse to do all sorts of things that are not kind of in its wheelhouse. Um, is that an aspect that you have developed at this point? Or is that just kind of like left for future work? I think that's a question general to all the like AI systems, even the general purpose um, language models, how to put on guardrails around its response. In MedPalm 2 um, testing, we actually presented the model with a set of um, adversarial questions that, um, with the intention to break MedPalm 2. So there's um, a lot of work that's needed in, in order to um, basically put these different guardrails around the model so it doesn't generate bias response or even amplify the health uh, inequality that was present uh, in the training data. Yeah, and maybe a couple of, you know, just broader points. Uh, one is, you know, the safety and alignment question. That's very important for the generally capable agents and systems that we are building today. But I think one of the nice things about working in a domain such as biomedicine, fair, for example, maybe you're building a, a bot for primary care triage or, you know, um, you know, bot that helps with chronic care management. The domain is constrained and that in turn, you know, makes the safety problem and alignment problem more tractable, say, compared to a general purpose chatbot such as GPT-4 or BART that is supposed to talk to you about philosophy or music or poetry or whatever. And so 
just the, because of the broad range of capabilities and the domain being unrestricted, it becomes a lot more challenging. Whereas for us, I think there are approaches that will be intractable for safety and alignment if you had a general purpose chatbot that become a lot more viable once you have like constraints over here. So I think that is going to be one like one direction that we are going to take technically to do more safety and alignment stuff where the, the work that we do over here is going to be very domain specific, but that in turn will allow us to, you know, proceed with guarantees around these systems and enable more of these, you know, clinical trials and regulatory conversations with safety as front and center. Uh, coming back to the other question that you had, are we like, you know, blocked by regulation? I would say uh, a couple more things. I think it's not necessarily true. I think... Uh, there's still a lot of work still to be done on the base model capabilities and on safety and alignment of these systems. And that can, you know, happen in parallel to the question around how we regulate these systems. And then the other thing is, it's just such a transformative technology, such, a, you know, a pivotal moment in history, as you, you know, mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, that I think it's okay for us as a society to take time and have deliberate conversations, thoughtful conversations before we come to a conclusion one way or another on how we like use these uh, technologies. And so in that sense, I think it's more important for us to get this right rather than just being fast over here. And hopefully that happens with a degree of urgency, given all the potential. You had mentioned, you know, a kind of deep personal motivation around having grown up in a, a place in, you know, a poor part of the world in India where access to medical care is just not, you know, what obviously you would hope it would be. How far do you think we are from really changing that in a fundamental way? I mean, you said it's a transformative technology, but it, it seems to me like we're not many years away from just radically democratizing access to quality medical advice, if not care. Uh, but advice is obviously worth a lot, you know, as a precursor to care. So... I mean, you know, you said it's not science fiction. Like, are we really looking at like a three to five year time frame to put a genuine AI doctor into everybody's hands around the world? So for me personally, right, I think, uh, you know, I grew up in, you know, parts of the world where, you know, for most people going to see a doctor was simply not a possibility. Uh, oftentimes it meant walking 30, 30 miles in extreme heat, giving up uh, day's wages, uh, going without food. And as such, you know, I knew many people who did not see a doctor in their entire lifetimes. And that meant like, for example, not detecting diseases earlier or, you know, dealing with the burden of like chronic diseases and overall like lower uh, life expectancy and quality of life. And for me personally, I've always wanted to do something about this. This goes back a decade now in terms of like the motivation of, you know, doing something about democratizing access to high quality healthcare. I'm pleased to say that I think the arc of progress in technology and AI in particular, especially in the last couple of years, allows us to dream of that future where, you know, world-class healthcare is democratized to billions of people worldwide. And we put a world-class AI doctor, you know, directly accessible in the pocket of billions of people worldwide. So in that sense, I think AI is, you know, truly transformative because I don't think there's another industry where the biggest problems uh, of that industry are immediately solvable by AI today. For example, the biggest problems in healthcare are A, access to healthcare, uh, B, cost, and C, quality. And all these things can be radically improved by AI today. And so I think that is immensely exciting for all of us working in this field because we see this uh, opportunity. And that is not just true for like places like India or Africa, for example, but also like, you know, solving different, there, there are different challenges in places like the UK and EU and the US. But again, all those problems can be solved by 
AI today. That just feels like, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime for it. And that just excites me and Tao and all of us who are working on this, not just at Google, but in, you know, in the wider space at large. Tao, any other uh, closing thoughts you want to share? I want to share like my like personal motivation. Of course, I share what um, Vivek said to make the medical care accessible to um, billions of lives. But coming from uh, a neuroscience background, I have always been intrigued by exploring the mutual benefits between AI and human intelligence. I think that's what um, got me excited uh, working at Google and especially working on this medical assistant job because I think it empowered me to do the things that I have dreamed of, which is that I want to use AI to accelerate scientific discovery. This multimodal map palm uh, is providing uh, tools for us to tackle um, problems like that. We can leverage the language capacities, like the language model has seen all the, let's say PubMed articles, all the biomedical research. And if we can leverage that knowledge and help us to um, discover, let's say new genetic biomarkers for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, that would be awesome. Yeah, it's a huge vision. At some point, it starts to seem like even the AI doctor in your pocket is maybe too small uh, of a vision relative to the potential. So it's uh, it's good to point out that it's not just operationalizing and scaling what we can do, but it's also kind of changing what we can do. Super fascinating to learn all about this new system. And uh, I hope we can do it again in a few months when... Uh, Multimodal MedPalm 2 comes out or whatever the next uh, big milestone is, because you guys are, are certainly on a roll. And I think it's you know one of the most consequential efforts going on in the space today. So in conclusion, Vivek Natarajan, Tao 2, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Yeah, thank you so much for providing us the platform to talk about our work uh, and also sharing more of our vision. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. We really enjoyed the conversation. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.